0: Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Eric Cho. Based in the greater Seattle area, Eric is a network technologist who has worked on some of the biggest networks at some of the biggest companies in the industry, including Amazon AWS and Microsoft Azure. You can follow him on Twitter at Eric Cho, that's E-R-I-C-C-H-O-U, and check out his website at networkautomationnerds.com. And you can also find his Network Automation Nerd podcast at podcast.networkautomationnerds.com. Eric is the author of the LeanPub book, Kafka Up and Running for Network DevOps, Set Your Network Data in Motion. In the book, Eric shows you how to get the Apache Kafka data message system up and running, helping you to expand your network engineering toolbox. In this interview, we're going to talk about Eric's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a book author. So thank you very much, Eric, for being
1: on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm a believer in the platform, so it's uh, it's very nice to meet you uh, over virtually, and uh, yeah. it's good to be here. Yeah, thanks. thank you very much for, for being on the podcast.
0: Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and the sort of curious way that you found your way into a career in network engineering.
1: Yeah, for sure. So I grew up in Taiwan and I, I uh, immigrated to the U.S. when I was uh, 13. So that's roughly like seventh grade, eighth grade and uh, kind of staying here. Uh, got my education that was in Southern California. And so, you know, technically I was, I started ESL, right? So that's for people who doesn't know, it's English as second language, typically for new immigrants coming in, that's where they're, um, that's where they'll start. So I've never thought I would be writing books in English. (laughs) And so, so that was quite a, uh, uh, quite a jump, you know, even though I've been in the country for uh, longer than, you know, in the U.S., longer than I was in Taiwan, but it's still, you know, kind of. Language is something that, you know, you're kind of emotionally connected, and especially when you're younger, if you're just kind of ingrained in yourself, your brain, that's how your brain functions especially for such a different language than in the Chinese and English. So for a long time, I had to translate something I hear into Chinese, into my mind, then translate back and then respond. And gradually you kind of graduate into a state where you just respond, um, naturally and intuitively. And on the flip side, you know, that means your Chinese is progressively like decreasing in efficiency. <laughs> so, you know, I'm sorry, my, my, you know, peanut sized brain just can't take two languages at the same time. And, um, but anyways yeah so i grew up in taiwan i immigrated to the u.s um i uh i studied business and finance back in college so really far away from technology um although because i i was in college during the kind of the later part of the uh the dot-com bubble i don't know if you remember but it was you know circa 1996 2000 where everything was just just crazily over and so um so I decided to say, okay, let's uh, if this finance thing doesn't work out, then I'll, I'll do a minor in um, computer related field. Not knowing anything about it, I picked the field that is obsolete by now, which is you know like multimedia web design. and if you, if you know this company, Macromedia, or front page, that sort of stuff, that's that's what it was. And that's, you know, quickly just got out of fashion, out of date. But it did give me the opportunity to go intern at a local ISP, an internet service provider at the time. And that's why it got me into, um, I was in support, so that got me into like the kind of a broad view of, Um, customer service how people connected to the internet and you know one thing led to another I moved to a bigger ISP launched some of these markets in uh, for cable broadband and then you know gradually into hardware and as you mentioned you know got into some of the top cloud providers in the early days which was really eye-opening and um, here I am you know 20 years later still in the, uh, still having worked a day in finance <laughs> <laughs> and just just being a, a you know a tech geek and, and a nerd so that's kind of in a nutshell how how it came about and so uh this so people get a little
0: bit of a sense of the kind of you know because your career your career like what you do when you're your job changes so much over time throughout your career. Right? Yeah. You've been there for this really interesting. I mean, they've always pick any 20 years in the development of these, these kind of telephony kind of you know data communication networks, and you'll find an interesting 20 years. Uh, but you've been here for sort of, you know, in the industry for a very interesting time. And you got into it at a very interesting time as well. And I just wanted to mention that this sort of like people from California who get into kind of network engineering and stuff like that from different paths, this has this has come up on this podcast a few different times. Mm-hmm, uh, with mm-hmm. with guests and it's um one guy he I'm um, speaking of you know multimedia he he ended up sitting on top of the Space Jam website,
1: uh, oh wow for Warner nice. Brothers and that was
0: that was because he was in L.A. or whatever you know like and right. there's this one thing that one of the artifacts of this sort of history of the when you think of the web is that how big and how important California was um and you know often we say Silicon Valley but it was like this was a, Cali- a sort of a California thing back in the, you know partly and uh, it was an experience that was shared by a lot of people. Um, And to be, I mean, particularly, you know, there'd be a lot of people who actually, you know, maybe got their degree in the specific area that they wanted that was hot. And then the dot-com bubble burst and they were like, oh, my God, now I've got to switch to something that I didn't study anyway. Um, (laughs) uh, So that leads me, before we get into the details of what you maybe did at your first job and then talk about how that's changed over time, um, I was wondering if you... This is a version of a question that comes up all the time on the podcast is if you were starting out now with the intention of having a career in the same area that you've had your career in, would you do a four year formal university degree or not?
1: Well, that's a that's a good question, um, you know, because I, so I have two young daughters and that's something that me and my wife talked about. Right. It's college education still uh, placed as much value as as it does. Right. Because. In my opinion, let us just go back and say, what's the value of a college education, right? Because that's essentially what the what the question is. What kind of value does a four year degree give you? So I think first is branding. You know for sure, like if you're uh, if you go to Ivy League, right? Like I have a Harvard MBA, Harvard degree, then that's branding, right? Somebody has has you know evaluated you and make sure you meet all the criteria for that. So that's branding. You're associated with a good brand. And second is connection, right? Like that you've met the people that perhaps that you were associated with later on in life. And the third is uh, the technical knowledge that you know it gives you, whatever major you are and and that goes along with like life skills, like how to manage your time, how to you know not to oversleep and not to get drunk the night before midterm, right? So those are the things that I think three things that give you those value. And what I would say to that is, Knowing what I do now i I think I will look back and think about whether I acquired those knowledge. so I didn't go to a Ivy League you know college right so first branding that's out. I didn't really associate myself with you know people who whom I ended up working with, and that's kind of iffy right so but that didn't pan out for me so so the third thing really is the technical knowledge, and that I didn't even do that it, like as we as we mentioned before so I think I, I that's a 50 50 chance. And because I was because I didn't grow up with um, a lot of money in the family, it took my mom all, basically all she had to just put me and my sister through college. So I probably would not have gone to college doing what I do now, knowing that I could still be disciplined enough to, uh, to get to where I am. Um, so most of what I, you know, like I said, was web design, but I end up in networking. So in order to get to a proficiency level, I have to do a lot of self-studying. And once I acquire enough, you know, funding and uh, kind of financial backing, I actually went back to uh, to uh, a certificate program to study Python, and that is where you know, like the coding part comes into play, and that is where you know the first book that that came out and so on. So I think, I think. To answer back to answer your circle back to your question i probably would not have if i had if i knew that i had the discipline to uh, acquire those knowledge myself um on my own but that is a big iffy right then the question becomes how do you know and you just don't see unless you start going to do it so um yeah for for my own personal background i probably wouldn't have done it but Having said that, I still put aside money in my 529 from the two kids. and <laughs> if, if they decide to take a gap year, fine, right? But, um, but at the end of the day, I want to give them that opportunity. They don't have to take it, but they will have the option to go to college. And that, that is my approach now. Ask me, you know, two years later, I might say something different. It's like, yeah, you know, sorry, junior. You know, I had a good night in Vegas and it's all gone. So <laughs> I guess you just have to get some scholarship.
0: Yeah. Thanks very much for sharing that. That's a really great, and that's a sort of a spontaneously structured answer, which is the best kind of answers. Uh, in my view. Nice. Um, and, yeah, I'm glad uh, you like it <laughs> yeah, very much. Um, uh, and um, I can say just speaking from my own experience, having done gone both to a non-brand name and to a brand name university, like it has a powerful effect on you, not, not just on other people's perceptions of you, but on you yourself to go to, to a brand name university. And like, in, like yeah. I mean, in my case, it was Oxford for my doctorate. Um, and um, one of the things about it that is very, it's very, um, you can't help but think you deserve the special treatment.
1: Oh, wow. Really? While. Okay. That's you interesting. Just, you,
0: I mean, I would say, I would say that's, that's true. I'm definitely, a, could confess that's true of me. And I, I think it's true of basically everyone. I know that you just kind of, it's like anything you kind of think you deserve it once you've got it. Um, you know, mm-hmm. that it's it's very easy to fall into that mental trap. Um, and so, although, going to like an Ivy league university or, you know, other kind of brand name university, it, it has this profound value that stays with you your whole life. At the yeah. same time, you need to, you, if you want to be a good person <laughs> and realistic about yourself, you do need to keep just on that very specific. So you do need to keep a kind of, you, you need to have an inner voice going. This was largely accidental. and 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 don't fall for the hierarchical stuff in 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 like too much you know
1: i think you you should give yourself more credit for than that of course right like you know i'm I'm pretty sure there's some some sort of little bit of entitlement but also you do deserve it right it is a hard thing to achieve and so you just like anything else you put a put a you know check mark next to it and and um and uh, you move on but i think you brought up a good point is this time value of education right so if you if you had your education in your 20s, that means your payback period, your compounding period is a lot longer than somebody who got it in say their 40s, right? Nothing wrong with the the time spent. It's just like, these are all finite resources that you you decide to spend your time on. Your opportunity cost is different. Your, uh, like I said, I think the biggest issue is your compounding, right? Like if you're you're starting, if you've gone to this particular university and you could get 20, 30% more in your base salary, stretch that over 20 years is very different than stretch however 10 years or 20 or 15 years so um, that's another good point where you brought up uh, you know uh, about uh, your investment yeah and and
0: it's as well yeah I know that that it's it's very interesting that point about compounding because one of the um one of the things I like to say about education is like true education is that like the kind of thing where you've spent years out of your life like focusing on on reading and learning and, and things like that is that it gives you a, a power that has to be possessed in order to be perceived mm-hmm. and and this is why the idea of like that there's some kind of like i use the word again like hierarchy of people who are edu- educated and people who who aren't is so ugly and ancient right it's just mm-hmm. because you have to kind of have spent those years doing it to go until, and like until finally go oh, oh man like i see the world completely differently now You know, I mean, and and you have all you really do if you if you've got the privilege to have the time and the resources to spend years in your youth in study, you know, it stays with you forever. I don't, you know, you know the movie Braveheart.
1: I oh, that was one of my favorite movies, man. Freedom. (laughs)
0: Yeah, well, one of my favorite scenes in that is when um Uncle Argyle is going to take um uh, young William Wallace off, and William Wallace, you know, who's now been orphaned, right? He he sees this his Uncle Argyle's awesome sword, and you know, obviously he wants to learn how to fight. And Argyle pokes him in the forehead and says, first, I'm going to teach you how to use this, meaning your mind. Mm-hmm. And then, right. and he holds up the sword, I'll teach you how to use this. And there's, right. you know, there's this, like, it might seem that like learning, spending years with your nose in books is is not a, a very martial way to spend your time, but actually it is. Um uh, so I guess we're getting maybe a little bit derailed there but like you know talking about education is <laughs> No really no important, it's it's um important it's subject. related
1: right because what you're doing with Lean Pop really is, is about uh, democratizing education and you know bringing that meritocracy up just because you are you're eliminating the gatekeeper for for the publishing which is which is awesome and uh, of course you know I didn't know that about uh, you liking Grayfair and uh, you know I used <laughs> yeah. to I used to Um, play around with my friends and just you know like trying to mimic you know like an asian guy trying to mimic like a scottish oxen and you know so that's that's pretty funny you know um but it is it is one of my my favorite movie just because i think um uh i just think i i I admire people who believe in something so firmly that they're willing to give their lives for it and not just their lives they're everything right so um at a at a i think the movie came out what 95 or that's that sounds, like something
0: that sounds right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Like, like 95 or so. And I think the one best picture or at least nominated for it. So, um, so at a young impression of page page for me looking at that movie. I'm just like, Oh my God, I wish I could find something that I believe so much that I could dedicate it, my life and my whole being to it. Um, I don't think I've still, I'm still searching for that, but, um, but I, I admire people who have found that calling. And, um, and back to what you were saying about, you know, um, having the right mindset, having the right, um, you know, kind of discipline that kind of accumulates over time. And I think that's the, that is, uh, is also a very good uh, value for it. And uh, hopefully you start developing that uh, while at a young age. So, you know, you compound it further, because that's a, a macro skill that applies to everywhere. Yeah, no, I, yeah, no, totally true.
0: And um, it's, it's uh, that's also actually funny, that's it's sort of people often describe their, um experience sort of going out of high school into the military that way as well. Yeah. I learned how to be disciplined and it's, it's often like we often think of the Sergeant barking at you, which I'm sure there's a lot of, but, um, you know, you, you're committing, you're making a years long commitment when you do that in a much more serious way than, than, than sort of going to college, which you can drop out right. at any time if you, if you just feel like it. And yeah, that learning, in addition to sort of like what I was talking about, you know, my, my sort of like, you know, romantic way of talking about the power of education, the power of discipline, uh, and spending years, Disciplining yourself when you're when you're young can have this compounding effect throughout your life as well. And so, those are sort of twin, kind of very important important things to keep in mind when you're making those decisions when you're when you're starting out. Um, And so, and so you you started out. uh, uh, Your first uh, job that I see here on LinkedIn was for Time Warner Cable. Uh, starting in 2001. And uh, I was wondering if you could, you, you said you did a lot of learning, you had to do a lot of learning on your own, and I imagine on the job and things like that. So what was the kind of work you were doing as a network engineer in the early 2000s? Like, what did you do in your in a typical day?
1: Yeah, you know, I think, so the first job I started was actually through a local ISP. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, just like a lot of ISP back then, um, they, they were belly up. So they they went bankrupt and no longer exist. So I think I had a hard time adding that. <laughs> so, so, oh. but, you know, in actuality, I started there. I want to give them credit. It's called Gus Networks. They gave me the start, you know, as a, as a young person who really didn't know what they were doing, you know, I was able to make, uh, you know, contribute and make a uh, significant, meaningful impact to their business. And that gave tremendous amount of um, uh, kind of, confidence to a young engineer, especially someone who did not study computer science or didn't come out of the, the traditional way. Um, so really, I, I would say it made a lot of difference uh, working for guest Networks. And so um, one of the things I know you had other guests who went through like kind of a Cisco route, uh, in particular, Nick, um, Nick Russo and some of the the books that he he published on CCIE CCDE so i kind of went through the same route uh, so cisco systems provides this great certification path and back then cisco was the way to to know i think at at that time they had something like a 70 80% market share for enterprise and for service providers a little lower but still significant so as long as you know cisco then you're you're probably guaranteed to get a shot at a job, right? But, you know, you may not be the the highest position available. It may not be the the job that you want, but that is kind of their path. So it was kind of an education, but it was like a Cisco, through a Cisco lens and you get certified through that, right? So while working at the ISP, you know, I got through the entry level, which was CCNA, like associate level. Then I had to uh, go for the professional level, which was like four additional tests, which lends me enough credibility to, um, to so learn a job at Time Warner Cable. So Time Warner was also a uh, one of the the big companies that gave me a large scale exposure. Um, they were, I don't know if you remember, but 2001 that was kind of still a dialogue world. and broadband was just being rolling out. So DSL and cable modem were, the kind of the two competing technologies that they were rolling out and they were actually head to head like they're really competing with each other to do the rollout and get enough coverage to cover uh, you know uh, United States or England or so other developing areas and so time when cable at the time they were trying to convert their cable plant into uh, cable broadband ready and so they were looking for young engineers to kind of relocate to to other areas and that might not be as desirable so even though I was in California so California is kind of an interesting state by itself you will probably be I think last counted it was like the eighth largest economy in the world even by itself right if you just separate it out so they're very diverse what you were talking, even relate back to what you were talking about earlier you know so you have the Northern California which is very tech focused very I don't know hippieish if you will and the Southern California which is a lot of uh, you know media companies a lot of diverse you know, uh, different, different industries in the middle part, which is very much agricultural and, um, you know, farming, that sort of stuff. So anyways, so in California, there were a time when the cable was looking for people to go to the desert and launch, it's the Palm Springs desert, to launch like the, the cable broadband. And it's not, uh, not everybody wants to go live in the desert, but at the time I was brave enough to raise my hand even without ever being there. So I just went out and um, got the exposure into um, kind of my large scale networking exposure. And for people who doesn't know what networking engineer do on a day-to-day basis, basically you um, you, you gain your knowledge by doing more and more and more complex, larger, more scale scale out networks and that's how you kind of build your street creds right like so you of course you study your books and you get your your protocols and you get your um exchanges you'll get your book knowledge but the way at least at the time without virtualization without a a lot of these lab stuff the way that you gain your credibility and kind of apply those book knowledge is working on more complex and larger networks and so that kind of kind of stayed with me to go to the time when a cable then uh, eventually working on large scale data networks for, uh, you know, Amazon in the early days, you know, you get that hockey stick growth for Microsoft Azure and um, sorry, you know, you, you hear my, uh, my Amazon uh, assistant <laughs> going in the background, but um, anyways, so yeah, so those are, those are the stuff that I kind of got into and um, you know, kind of just stay with me.
0: And so would that be you for example like you know when you were working for time warner and they got you this kind of you know job in this sort of less desirable area were you going to like a big basically building and racking and stacking servers together and things like that like people might have seen if they're not familiar with it seeing the movies these big rows of you no know, <laughs> you know, columns of basically computing machines
1: yeah so it was even more basic than that so you know you see these servers but these server needs to be connected somehow right and what what i was doing was actually connecting residential areas for uh, for people so instead of dial up i mean it sounds so ancient at this time but it was actually at a time where people when they need to get online they need to uh, plug in their phone line and you know dial into a service provider via your RJ11 and uh, you know and uh, and you know you see these modem like like so these counts were these were these were like kind of the last generation and in order to have it always on, they would have time when the cable would have these HFC network, which is the long haul is through fiber, which was very clean. And they, they spent probably 10 to 15 years laying down these fibers. And on the last mile, they would have these um, you know, coax cable that come into people's home, mainly for a TV, because the coax could actually carry a lot of frequencies and so on. So what they've done is they try to uh, dedicate a frequency for your uh, downstream network and what they've done was they slowly graduate converting these um, networks to have an upstream bandwidth and that is why you know when when you're talking about both DSL and cable modem you, you're you're talking about asynchronous speed your download speed usually is a little bit different than your upload speed and that's that's the difference it's they were most of these um, I, I would say both I'm not as familiar with DSL but I would Say both the DSL and the cable network were meant for a downstream traffic to carry over signals that way, um, and then you know because of the the need for the internet, they start upgrading the upstream. And so I was what I was doing was gradually converting these node by node, um, what they call node by node. It's like each node governs like 500 homes past, and so on. These go into some different calculation. So it's a little different than that. It's what we're doing these for the residents. So we would go to like these node and we'll certify them and say, now it's internet ready. So people could go out and sign up for broadband for their, you know, $29.99 per month on the cable broadband. And we're doing that uh, node by node. So, you know, as a young engineer, it was really great exposure because when I arrived at the market, I was at, I think there was like, I don't know, like 40 people who was like internal internal employees who were just trialing this this network but by the time i left two and a half years later i think it was like twenty four thousand users or something like that so you you kind of get that exposure and it's something that you don't really get to do very often is to launch a market and see that growth period going up so um so yeah so you know it's it's much lower than a data center of a bit different than what I've done later on when I was with the public cloud provider. And that is exactly what you were talking about. Those, those data centers are just rows and rows of servers. You're worrying about you know connecting them most efficiently and uh, how to do... Uh, the question becomes how to... Does the server talk to those servers most efficiently as well as how does the server talk to the end client in a, in a more, I guess, cost-efficient way?
0: So were you like the cable guy's cable guy? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, that's, that's, that's a very good way to put it. So the cable guy were probably in terms of like connecting you. And I was in the, the back end connecting all the cord together. But in order to do my job, uh, you don't necessarily have to, but I do go out with the, uh, the cable installers to see how they actually install the wires, how they clamp it, mm. what are some of the... Um, Interferences. That was the biggest thing for us. Is these interferences um, when in the traditional network, when it's all just from your head end going down to each of your customers, you're able to control the source to be really, really clean without interference into each of the residential uh, customers. And uh, but when you start talking about like upstream, which was a the signal comes from the customer back into the head end. And you mm-hmm. could just, you could just kind of guess, you know, it's kind of like a reverse funnel, like all these signals will be coming back. If you turn on the microwave, those are some interference that comes back. If you like turn on your vacuum even, right, those are interference. So if you have a piece of uh, cable or, um, you know, fiber, for example, that is damaged that actually a- aggregates back. And because you're oversubscribing bunch of customer to one node, that one node, when it goes down, it impacts all five hundred customers. And if you trace back large enough, it's it's going to impact uh, a lot more people. So, anyways, I guess my point is, um, I guess my point is that it's it's kind of an interesting world that I was in, and it gave me the kind of exposure that I would not otherwise have. Of course, it wasn't you know it wasn't all you know unicorns and rainbows. It was very harsh, <laughs> you know, like people were. Um, A bang on the door, trying to get internet and you just have to turn them away, which was, I guess a good problem to have, but at the same time, it was a problem. Nonetheless, we couldn't build it fast enough for our customers.
0: Yeah. And I mean, speaking of things being hard and stressful, I mean, and then once they're hooked up, it better work 100% all the time, or else they're going to be banging down your door saying like, why is it down?
1: Um, Oh, hundred percent. Right. And also at the time, uh, the triple play was huge at the time, which was, you know, you get your TV. Internet and phone services from your cable provider, and in order to do that, uh, you know, you get into the whole other territory. Like your nine hundred and eleven calls, your imaginary battery backup. What if the power goes out, right? The phone uh, for those people who doesn't know, you know, the phone you're supposed to still work. Um, not the not the wireless one that you require a plug into power, but the ones that are those old handhelds that. Even if you don't have power, you're supposed to be able to plug in your your phone jack, and you should still be able to dial nine one one, regardless of you know whether you have the uh, the phone service or not, right? You could be in an abandoned building, and you should still be able to dial nine one one, which was these these kind of requirements. So as a cable company, you know it's great to have the business, but at the same time, you're under under a different set of rules and regulations in order for you to offer that third triple play service. So, um, yeah, so what, what you talk about as, you know, uptime and, uh, you know, people's expectation. Luckily for us at the time, they were, they were so happy to have a broadband internet. <laughs> you know, I was, able to, um, I was able to have a maintenance window and which was like, I think for me at the time was between 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., so anything, any outage that happened within that window, it doesn't count toward our uh, service level agreement. So in other words, we don't get, we don't have to pay refunds you know, for customers, uh, but it's a different world now. You know, you imagine now you tell people that, hey, you know, at any given time, your internet may be out for three hours and we're not going to do anything about it. That's just not going to fly. But back then it was okay to have, you know, kind of a people's expectation were different back then.
0: Well, it, and it's so interesting, the idea of expectations and things things being serious and difficult more generally. I mean, I imagine one of the things that must be kind of frustrating sometimes being an engineer is that, like, everybody respects doctors because they know what doctors do. They, you know, they, they have at least an idea of what doctors do, right? They don't understand right. the details, but it's like, I'm hurt, you fix me. Um, yeah. You know, everyone knows what teachers do. And when you come to things, particularly when it comes to things like computers and computer networks and things like that, people are like, it just works. And it's like, that duck is paddling really hard under the water there. (laughs) And that duck really knows their stuff. And I wanted, I just want to bring it up in that context to say, because you brought up these Cisco certifications and things like that earlier, they, that those, those things are incredibly hard. Um, You have to learn a great deal. And you have to be tested very rigorously precisely for the kinds of reasons that you're bringing up. It's not just as it were just customer expectations. Although at scale, you're talking about whole populations of people, it's 911 networks like that better work. If the power goes down, that better work. And the people doing, who are setting these things up, designing them in the first place, the people who diagnose and maintain them and the people who are brought into kind of like, well, how do I know where a fault is? You know, somewhere between point A and point B, these kinds of things are like not just really hard in themselves, but to do under pressure and to be hardened. And you know, that's that's a lot of the work. So I just wanted to make make sure the people listening who are there <laughs> that like it's not like just getting a Cisco certification. You know, this is yeah, this is you know, I, very I, I very think very all, difficult thing to do.
1: I, I appreciate being appreciated. <laughs> but back to you know like the um, the episode with Nick, right? So Nick came from a military background. So what you guys talked about. I feel like Nick should pay me some commission for—he's uh, a friend, but oh, okay. <laughs> commission for mentioning his podcast episode so much. But uh, but anyways, he came from a military background, and what he talked about was, you know, when you have nothing, like you just you need to drop into the desert and provide connectivity for these soldiers to have secure communication back home to both their family as well as to their colleagues, and you know, receiving uh, intelligent information not being intercepted by the enemies and so on. So um, so those are different areas, as you mentioned, right? Like that's a different level of, of uh, service level um, or security requirements and all of that. And um, you're right uh, as far as the Cisco certification. And it's the same for a lot of vendor certifications. It's like the degree of difficulty goes incrementally. So at the time when I uh, was going for, uh, they call the expert level exam. It actually took me five years and um, had to go learn a bunch of stuff. I go sit um, uh, sit in front of a, a, a lab that they provided and for eight hours to prove that you're able to get solve anything that throw at you. So, and then at the end, they give you a number and say, you're now, you know, if you pass, right, like you, they give you a number and now you're, you know, uh, so my number was 22460. And Supposing that number is not never going to be given to anybody else that's, you know, that goes to the grave for, with me. So, you know, that's how that's kind of like the effort that you have to put in, in order to achieve that certification. And um, yeah, and you know, you probably use like anything else, you use like a fraction of it in real life, but hopefully that fraction is something that you studied before. And if not, then you learn on the job. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, thanks very much for sharing that. It's super interesting, actually. It leads me to ask about um, the sort of, you know, sort of next stage of your career, as it were, I guess. Sure. It was also was also one where you experienced this great growth, which was um, at Amazon and AWS. Uh, I right. believe you started working there in 2006, which is forever ago in, in terms of AW, in AWS terms. Um, right. And I was just wondering for people who are like familiar with this and might want to hear a little bit about what it was like on the inside. Can you talk a little bit about just what it was like being in that environment for those years?
1: Yeah. So, so um, it was very interesting. So I, I want to say I was very lucky to be able to, you know, write that first wave, which was the broadband wave. Um, You know, if you, if you think back at 2001 timeframe, it was during the dot-com bubble where the bubble burst, but I was still lucky enough to have a job because I was in a growth, uh growth area, highly growth area within time order. And again, you know, in 2006 and I stay at the AWS, an Amazon uh, company during the, the financial crisis, right? So that was the second, second crisis. And I was lucky, still lucky to have a job because I was in, in such a high growth market. So it, it's no, no merit by myself. It was just basically be at the right time at the, at the right place at the right time. But yeah, you're right. So 2006 was when I joined Amazon. It was very much a retail store, it was very much a retail business, right? You get your three percent margin, and they're very cost of, cost uh, conscious on uh, on that front. And if I remember correctly, it was they barely got out of the um, the dot com you know uh, fiasco basically. And I think the our, our fierce leader at the time, Jess Bezos. You know, he, he was hurt so much on by that. He, he rarely gave interviews after he was being named time person of the year in, I think it was 2000. So it was very much a retail low margin uh, mindset. And then they launched this small service called S3 back in 2006, you know, like March of 2006, I joined uh, August of 2006, but it never really took up until the year after which they start offering EC2, which was like a virtual machine, basically you rent their compute power. And it just took off by then. And we knew we had something special, but we also knew it was so young and so fragile that if you don't take care of it, it's just going to die in its infancy. So I think a lot of us back then were on this mission of bringing uh, cloud computing, which was the term that later coined, but bring utility computing, cloud computing to the world. And um, we were just... uh, it was a very exciting time, but it was also working really hard and none of us knew what we were doing. And, uh, we were given a lot of, uh, leisure, like leeways to do a lot of stuff that we haven't tried before. Like for myself, you know, I was part of the original team to launch, uh, CloudFront, which was a a super great exposure to, you know, be able to survey around the world and see you know, which area should we go next? And it's something that's, uh, again, growing business from the ground up. So those are the area that gave me great exposure and, uh, being a founder yourself, you know, going from zero to one, is super difficult just as from, you know, one, to scaling up.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting. I was, um, just, uh, before we started this interview, I was listening to one of your, um, one of your podcasts and, uh, you talked about going to an all hands meeting, uh, at Amazon around that time when Jeff Bezos, um, Made this comment, and I'm really glad you actually teed, teed up this question because I was trying to find a way to, to ask it. But um, sure. uh, about the vulnerability, right? That that and the sense of kind of like caring for something new and the sort of threat of low margins. Um, you know, yeah. a, you know. And this is by the way, none of this is to praise Jeff Bezos or Amazon in any particular way. But like, <laughs> but like that that company, like we we it it is what it is now because it went through a great deal, um, and uh, and one of the things that Jeff Bezos said at this meeting that you attended was um, good intentions. I think it was either, it was like something like good intentions, yeah, good don't, intentions don't, don't work. Don't work. Right. Yeah. Right. I, was, I, was actually, work. I was, I was actually, I was, I was actually going to say good intentions don't matter. And that was even me being uncharitable, uh, and <laughs> my instinct, which is why I was kind of checking myself before, but like, sure. Um, Good intentions don't work. Uh, I mean, you. Right. How, how do you? How do you get through what Amazon went through? I mean, like you know, having a little bit of a background in finance myself, like years of unprofitability, having especially when you're a public company doing what an extraordinary thing, right? Which like we're going to lose money for years. Trust me.
1: <laughs> you, <laughs> you know, That's a hard thing, hard pill to swallow for investors, for sure. Well, well, and then you, and
0: then you, he, he really did have to prove it right yeah And he and i mean like the whole everybody who worked there had to prove it right and so what what does in in your view what does you know good intentions don't matter mean? don't matter i did it again good intentions don't work mean does that yeah so
1: i think i think i was with um so just to give a little context for people who did not listen to that episode so i was um i was in this group called tier one services and our group was responsibility, main responsibility to make sure the website stays up. And when it goes down, we contact the right group to fix it. So we, you know, just like a lot of companies that, you know, the, the services are classified into tier one, tier two, tier three. And what classifies tier one is usually things that when they break, you don't make money. Right? So like networking, for example, if the network breaks, you don't make money. So it's very crucial. And that's a question that was always on our mind, like as a team and was a brand new team too. It was like, I think I was maybe one of the first engineers I was hired into, one of the first network engineers that was hired into the group. So things that at the time to put background information, I was really thinking about what does it mean to be a network engineer in a tier one service and how do we monitor the network, how do we scale monitoring to a point where, you know, people still have a quality of life reasonable life but at the same time the the you know we could uh, we could still keep a certain sla going so when i attended that meeting that was kind of the question's always in my mind and when when jeff came out on the stage and said you know good intentions don't work and he he took his time to explain why good intentions don't work right people have good intention but when it's 3am in the morning you're tired you're you're not thinking right or if it's you know like Friday night that you have something else that you want to attend to that, you know, human nature prompts you to take shortcuts or human nature prompts you to trying to fix things as soon as possible. So you could get onto it and it's nothing wrong with that. Uh, It's just human nature. So what he ended up saying was what works is a system and automation that works. And so you want to rely the computer to solve your own problem about you know, human nature being, we're we're tired. We're not consistent. You know, when when uh, when we try to do things for the thousandth time, we tend to make mistakes. So what works is really you offload the uh, the those stuff to automation, to computer assisted work, and you you free yourself up into the higher level of tasks that uh, that's meant for human brain, such as designing your network the correct way. So with that in mind. That kind of just hit me really hard um, at that moment, you know, it's like you could almost go back to several moments in, in your career where you, you're like, oh my God, that was looking back, you know, that was the moment that that hit you. And so for me, even if I talk about, you know, learning Python, writing books on Python or Kafka, all these other technology stuff, right? These are just tactical stuff. Fundamentally, that changed my mindset about which direction I should go on, you know, what, what actually works. So to back to your question, he said, good intentions don't work. So what really works are automation that you want to, you know, uh, realizing your own shortcomings as human beings and, uh, find the t- right tools and the, the strategy to, to help you solve those problems.
0: Which actually is another great segue that you provided me with, or opportunity for a segue, thank you there, which is to your first, your first book, um, uh, which you yeah. published with PAC, which was about automation. Um, sure. Uh, it's called, uh, for those who don't, aren't aware, it's called Mastering Python Networking, Your One-Stop Solution to Using Python for Network Automation, Programmability, and DevOps. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, if you could kind of maybe talk at the same time about what you mean when you're talking about automation there with Python and things like that and how that, sure. how that, how that really changes, like, a, like how that's a part of your journey as a network engineer into like learning how to scale through automation and things like that. Um, and, and sort of maybe tell the story of how the book came about at the same time.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Thanks for asking that question. Um, so I think in, in order to know the, uh, the kind of. The kind of reason of writing that book, you know, you go back to the, the days of Amazon. You're growing super fast. You're barely keeping up. Like I said, it wasn't always rainbows and unicorns, right? We were dying. We we're just like we couldn't meet the the demand fast enough. And with the amount of projection that we're saying, we need X amount of servers. We need X amount of data centers. And everybody was racing toward that goal. I think um, Andy Jesse, who's now the CEO for Amazon, at the time he was the head of AWS and uh, a, a very young you know AWS org, he said, when elastic computing become inelastic, that's when when the, the the industry would die, right? So your, your whole premise, you know your whole premise build on that your, your, um, when somebody pays the credit card and turns on that S3 bucket, that S3 bucket's got to be there, right? Or the ec2 instance it's got to launch. So your elasticity depends on a solid back end. That meets your your peak demand. And that peak demand is a shifting, shifting target. And that that shift is dramatically different than what I've always used to, you know, talk about time Warner cable. That projection was very linear. You know, at a certain time you do what, and then that'll get you over to the next hump. And you know, your resources, you could plan ahead. You know, your your, you know, if you're digging up some trenches, you got to go apply for the government. That's that's three months of you know, paperwork, but it's very different with Amazon. So the scale was just on a di- different, just different scale, uh, at all. So networking wise, that becomes a very big challenge in order to provision to, uh, there's some stuff that you can, uh, cannot automate, right. Rack and stack. You got to physically put the, put the box there. You got to physically connect these tables, but. You know, if you think about provisioning, if you think about, okay, now, now the racks are there. Now I need to connect these, these boxes together, provision, the servers, the VLANs, the, the, the port speeds and all of that, those could be automated. So those, that is when you really, in order to survive that kind of a growth, you have to be able to use computers again to manage these boxes. And unfortunately at the time, the mindset of the networking industry was much more geared toward a human managed network. And so the devices fundamentally do not, are not automation friendly. So, you know, so now you have these contradicting, contradicting priorities, right? The vendors will give you one set of things, expecting a human on the other end to manage it. But at the same time, you need to be able to manage these boxes automatically uh, at least once, you know, once the standard has been provisioned and now you're just kind of rubber stamping on the same notes uh, across. So that is where I started to think about or for survivability really, you know, how do we, how do we do this, right? How do we um, provision uh, so much of these devices in such a short amount of time with the amount of people that we have? And that that is the kind of the path and the growing pain that me and a bunch of other engineers went through within Amazon and with and and also to other org as well, right? You talk about Facebook, Yahoo, Microsoft, all these other companies who need to provision um, the servers fast enough for the network. So I went through a period of time thinking about that, and eventually, I don't want to say we solved that problem, but at least we have a fighting chance of solving that problem with Python and with some of the newer packages and so on. So. After a few years of doing that, I, I I looked around, and of course, there was no resources back then to to learn from. So I made a lot of mistakes. We made a lot of mistakes. I poke myself in the eye constantly, and so a couple of years later, and I started writing blog posts, right? Like about you know these bits and pieces that I've learned along the way, and um, I started thinking about what I would, if I know what I know now. Um, you know, what, what would I tell myself younger self when I was just starting out? Um, cause I see a lot of other engineers trying to come down the same path and, um, making the same, essentially making the same mistake that I made or in the same boat of being confused and not knowing what's the scope, why we're we even doing it. So that was my persona. You know, I was writing that book for my younger self and say, you know, it's okay, uh, don't don't panic and uh, hear the the stuff that I wish I had known and put into a book format. Um, um And the second question was, how did the book about? So came about. So like I said, I was starting writing blog posts, and these are just bits and pieces these are notes for myself, really. You know i, I took a lot of notes and I converted some of those notes that I think are uh, useful for others. And um, at the time, I think one of my uh, blog posts about openflow, which is, um, at the time, it was a newer, newer technology and not a lot of resources out there, Start ranking pretty high on Google search. If you do like OpenFlow for uh, Pox controller, I think you rank pretty high and that got the notice of some editors that packed and they reached out and, uh, you know, kind of the rest is history.
0: Yeah. And was it very exciting to get approached by a publishing company? I don't want to, I don't want to talk, we, we normally talk about that kind of stuff mostly at the end, but, um, and that's what sure. we'll do in this interview as well, but um, sure. it must've been sort of exciting to be approached by a publishing company and asked you to know, write a
1: book. It was exciting, but it was also, um, I didn't know what the I didn't think that they knew what they were talking about. <laughs> so I think um, when you talk about Python networking, you're t- you're typically talking about like sockets and like servers and like little protocols within like Linux kernel about networking versus network management. So I had to go go a double take and say, Are you sure this is what you were talking about and um, this is what you want me to write a book about? Because that's all I know. And, um, and they say, yeah, you know, that's fine. They confirm it a couple of times. And uh, then I start saying, okay, great. You know, um, I didn't know about lean po back then, but I would have like, probably still write a self published book, even if they hadn't approached me, because that's just something I wanted to do. But, you know, great, you know, now, now PAC was willing to give me a chance to do it. So I, I wrote the book really, really fast before they realized they made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that that's, that's, that's what it was.
0: And so you'd been writing blog posts and then you published this book. And was that around the time that you started to make courses and things like that and become kind of a content creator on at least, I mean, I'm going to say on the side, um, but, um, cause you have always sure. had, a, had a job the whole time, but you, you do have, like you do make books and courses and, and blog posts and, and podcasts now as well. Was, did you, was there a point in time when you decided to step this would be like a, a big part of your non nine to five life?
1: Yeah. So, um, I, I want to give credit to Michael Kennedy as well as his uh, podcast on Talk Python. So, of course, you know I, during the time I was learning Python, I was trying to look for resources on on Python itself, and his podcast was a great influence on me. And at the time, I believe he actually recommended two books. If I remember these titles correctly, one is called A Company of One, um, and the other was The End of Jobs um and so both of these books the the, basically the gist of these books were you are your own uh company you want to treat your career as if you're a startup of one uh you want to take care of your uh you want to market your skills and think of yourself as a marketing right so there's where's your demand who's paying you to do uh to do what right like what what your skill set fits somebody who would uh pay you to do right like i I may love eating pizza, but nobody's going to pay to watch me eat pizza. So you want to find these circles. And then once you find that overlap, you want to spend all of your time uh, working on that part because that's the part where it's most valuable to people. So after listening to that, I thought to myself about uh, where I want to take my career. Um, you know, at the time I had a young family. Um, I just, you know, I, whether my first kid was born or, uh, or uh or i have my second kid i can't recall but anyway so that got me to think about where i want to go i still need that job but also i want to take advantage of um, the opportunity to to generate side income and uh, treating my career as if it's a startup so i wanted to know what where is my my most valuable skill set and where's the market demand for that and so on and so forth. So that is when I started to, you're right, that was around uh, 2016, 2017. 2017 was when the book came out. But 2016 is when I started making courses and uh, trying to find that uh, unfulfilled demand out there. And that's, that in itself is a kind of a, goes back to what you know, finance and business degree with you right like you know you want to find a demand that is unfulfilled and that's large enough to sustain a couple of players in it and so on and uh you know that was a um, that was kind of the trigger and that continue on to today where I enjoy making content and uh but as you know right like you know making content is great and all but it's hard to scale because you're really just depending on yourself so that that's what I see as the next challenge is how do we uh make user-generated content beneficial uh and have the kind of influence um that it deserves so so anyway so that's that's some question i have and that's why um Lean pop is such a great platform and i was actually surprised to hear that it's been around for 10 years i mean you must have a, a great story to tell and i'm looking forward to you know like listening to your i, I listened to several episodes but not all of them, but I look forward to you know listening to your story, your how you came up, and um, all the challenges that you solve.
0: Yeah, no, thanks very much for sharing all of that, and for the kind words about Leanpub at the end. I mean, obviously, enabling kind of content creators like yourself to kind of you know get, do things efficiently in a way that scale, reach an audience that scales. You know, it's, it's, that's kind of like that's what we're all about is 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 trying to help people do that. It's funny, actually, the 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 um. The file number on the recording for this episode is 200 so this is oh nice. our 200th recorded episode um, and and I nice just bring it you. up because we, I've been thinking about doing a kind of like just solo what is lean pub kind of episode where maybe I would just talk for 45 minutes or an hour about you know what is lean pub what's it how long has it been around all that kind of stuff and what have been some of the challenges
1: over the years. Oh, Um, forget my episode. I'm looking forward to that episode. Like put that into 200. I'll be like, you know, 201, 215. I don't care, but uh, I want to listen to that one.
0: Yeah. The, um, the, uh, the, the, the fun, not, I'm not going to go off about that too much, but yeah, the the fun parts will be like the things you kind of, when you've been around that long, the things you stop noticing, you you stop noticing that they're not happening anymore. Like people Mm -hmm. going, why would I buy a, a book that's not finished? <laughs> like, of course when we launched we got that all the time because you know yeah like link Pub books weren't just unfinished in the sense of like serial novels that are published chapter by chapter they were like unfinished nonfiction books that are published after someone's finished three chapters and by the way they're probably going to be revising chapter one every every time they go back in and so like even something you read is now going to be changed and that that was a strange idea but knock on wood we basically don't get that anymore um, right uh, and so that's one of the features of being around for a while like that is that like you know people don't if you're doing something that's kind of like insofar
1: as lean pubs innovative you know like in a sort of fundamental way when it comes to publishing um I yeah actually, so i, I mean actually, that has to also to do with i mean back to that business mindset right like if you treat if you treat your skill set as a quote-unquote company of one you want to do the proof of concept you want to have a lean process that's advertised by uh, was it eric rice uh, with his book of yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. Eric,
0: the st- Eric Reese's first the, or the first means yeah, book was Startup Lessons Learned, which was turning
1: Eric Reese's blog into a into a book. Um yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so for sure, right? Like so, yeah, everything that you just said really resonates. And I'm glad that you don't uh like people start to have that buy-in, right? Like they could drive the direction of of the finished product if you're able to just show it to people and put it in front of people so that they know um. They know where the demand meets the the skill set.
0: Oh yeah, definitely, and it's um uh, just I mean to talk about that for a moment as well. Um, uh, one of the things we always used to say is you know the biggest one of the biggest successes we can give an author is uh, proof they should stop writing their book. Um, yeah. <laughs> because in in the olden in the in, in the as were the olden days, you know, sort of if you sort of have a sort of cartoonish image of how a book is written, right? It's like you get a contract with the publisher. Then you go live in a cabin in Norway for three years, right, working on your magnum opus, and then you give it to the publisher, and two years later, (laughs) it makes it through their process, and it comes out, and then no one wants it,
1: right? Um, And if that's a tragedy,
0: that's well, if you were on a mission, if you meant it, if it was valuable in itself to you to go through that and write that and have it out there, and maybe someone will discover it in a hundred years, or maybe they never will. Those are that's time very well spent. But if your goal was to get an audience for your work. And, yeah. and, and for yourself perhaps, or for your cause that you're advocating to yeah. find out five years later, what you could have found out if you just published two chapters in that no right. one's interested in a book on the subject, then you yeah. just, you
1: just saved that person, you know, 4.8 years, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then he could work on his next, next, uh, masterpiece. Right. Yeah. I think, yeah, absolutely. Right. Like if you're, if your goal is just to write something that ple- pleases yourself and, you know that's something down the line, of course. But I think the majority of our work, you know, we want to see that reach, and we want to be able to, you know, be the change that we want to be. So, and oftentimes for authors, that's through their writing. And if nobody reads it, then, you know, what are the chances of you accomplishing your goal?
0: Yeah, the, the, the it's it's interesting. The old um the old example I used sort of funny example I used to give was to show how complicated it is like deciding what to write about when it's something if you like writing and you like teaching people specifically with respect to kind of prescriptive nonfiction, which is mostly in pub books, which is, you know, teaching you how to do stuff, basically, or explaining things. Um, Right. If you really like a subject and you're and you, you know, you really want to write about it and and share it with people, even you still have to make a choice about what to do first. Right. And so, for example, like, you know, you might write the expert's guide to model train sets and you publish it and no one's interested. But if you'd started writing the beginner's guide to model train set, the intermediate guide to model train set, and the expert's guide to model train sets, and you started writing all three at the same time, published each one when it's three chapters in, and you noticed no one was interested in the expert's guide, but there was a ton of people interested in, in, in the beginner's guide, right? Well, now, right. Now, now you know which project to work on, and when it's done, right. guess what next project you're going to work on? All these people have finished the beginner's guide, they're going to want the, <laughs> the intermediate guide, right? So, you know, like this, this, it, it's actually like publishing as you go with projects has these many kind of deep kind of benefits, including abandoning projects. Um, yeah, and that's, that's for some sure. of the stuff that we've learned. We've learned
1: over the years that was a bit unexpected, but, um, but speaking, yeah, I'm of, not um, ashamed to, uh, to, to tell you that, um, the first book I started with lean pub was many years ago. And I think I, I, just, so I, and like, like what you said, I actually, um, was, um, uh, speaking at DevNet create for one of the Cisco events. And I actually, before the event, it was, it wasn't an elastic stack. So, and, and the talk was on elastic and before the event, you know, I kind of advertised the book and so on. And I, I saw a total of one copy. So I know that's not, you know, probably I either shift my focus into like a more useful way for people, or, you know, I just kind of bend in that. So, so that, so Kafka book really wasn't my first uh, encounter with, with Lean Pub. But um, but you know, that was still very useful information, even just to pick the right project to work on. Um, and I do put my money where my mouth is, right? Like as soon as I, I made it enough, I went back and got a lifelong uh membership with Lean Pub. So I am uh, for for better or for worse, man, I'm 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 counting on the platform to be around for ten and 20 years.
0: Yeah, well thanks very much for that. And actually just so people know so we do we do have um some we do have like we have a freemium model so you can there's, sure. a, there's a free plan so you can do lots and lots of things awesome things as a self-published author but there are some things that require maintenance and things on our side so we do have paid standard and pro plans. Um and uh, what Eric's talking about is um it, it's actually like it's a it's a form of thing that we we actually are very glad to be able to provide to people which is um if one of the other values or one of the other Things of value that can come from publishing in progress is that your, your book project can become self funding. Mm-hmm. So if if you if your book starts making some money, uh, then you can use that to pay for you know like you know a, a week a week off to work on the book you know take a little leave, leave from work or you can use it to pay for um advertising for your book if you want to do that and like if you can set up a good self funded advertising model for your book. Well, now you've just got something that takes off on its own, tie it in a bow as it were. And, and, you know, off you go. And, and you can also, you can also, of course, if you're, if you're on one of our monthly plans, we have lifetime plans. So you just don't have to worry about the monthly payments anymore. And like a lot of authors who have our lifetime plans is exactly that. They're like, Oh, this one's working out. I guess I'll get, I'll use my my, my proceeds to get a, to get a lifetime plan. And now I don't have to worry about that anymore. And I can yeah. just work on as
1: many LeanPub projects as, as I want using all the features and and the way you go. Um, yeah, something that I think it's both true in self-publishing as well as open source project is the issue of sustainability, right? Like what you were talking about. Um, you know, these are a, a lot of the pro a lot of the um, technologies we work on are open sourced uh, or started in open source and can kind of be uh the result of a a lot of volunteers volunteer their time effort and energy into this project but you know the issue now the issue becomes the sustainability who's paying for these if there are no costs to do this and same thing for content creators is um how do you sustain your operations and um you know back to back to what you were we were talking about lean pub you know a traditional publisher, since I've worked with um, I've also worked with O'Reilly and, and all these other publishers that produce on, on a smaller scale, but you know, their their aim is a little different, right? Their overhead structure is different. They they have to have a uh, their motto is to have certain like 1% or 5% of the books that profit that's profitable enough to make up for the rest of the book that that does not make money which results in a smaller percentage for of royalty for the authors that do uh, you know end up being that 1% and you know whatever person counts for that model what ends up being is it's hard to sustain a writing career if you're only getting 16 20% or up to 25% of the royalty that the books makes however if you're able to use a lower overhead platform and still get even just a fraction of the sales figure, first of all, you're, you're able to write top, on topics that may not you know, gear toward the, the general public and very much you know service toward that, that long tail. Um, but at the same time, you'll you're be able to sustain uh, your project. So I think those are two big issues that I see right now in open source community as well as content creators is just this sustainability like you know you'll see hyper successful companies like um anaconda which is a python you know package uh, company for data science that they're uber successful they're the company but they still have to go out and do you know series a series b series c funding that um you know, just to sustain their operation and still be contribute back to the open source community. And if they have to do that, think about the 10,000 other companies that are doing similar stuff, but doesn't have the the recognition or visibility of Anaconda. So uh, it's not a problem that we could solve right away, but what you're doing and what LeanPub is doing is being part of the solution. Yeah, that,
0: no, yeah, no, that's, that's a very good description of, of how a lot of particularly the publishing industry works, right? Like, you know, because if you're a conventional publishing company, I mean, so, somewhat infamously they're spent typical publishers tend to be spending less and less on advances and things like that and less yeah. and less on marketing and stuff like that and um they're you know it's it's a it's a big problem right because for them to attract authors because you know if you're if you're not if you're not giving them a high royalty rate like if you're giving them a low royalty rate and then when, one of the things that happens because specifically for what you're saying like only a small proportion of the books that a publishing company publishes are profitable and can make up for all the investments in both those books and all the other books that they've had to invest in. What happens is that like, if you, if your first book ends up kind of in the remainder section of the book, not doing too hot, no, you're not going to have a very good chance of getting a second contract. I mean, I'm I'm sort of like speaking, speaking at a very kind of abstract level here. Like, I mean, keep going, don't, don't give up, you know what I mean? But like, but still like, and like notoriously too, you know there you, you can be you can you can like so sort of be really excited my first book is out but if the guy sitting next to you his book is doing better just in that first week guess who's going to get the next week's marketing budget you know what right. i mean and and right. now your book dies but maybe if maybe if you know just there'd been a different news article out that week on your subject yours would have been the one that that made it beat the other one in the first week and you would have got the the company's marketing budget going forward and yeah. so it, it's, very, it's very, I mean, like, you know, all things in life are risk and there's precariousness and sort of luck and, and bad luck and things like that. But
1: um, yeah, you lose out a lot of gems, right? Like, so I think if you think back on the, the uber successful uh, comic of Seinfeld, the first three seasons were just like, they're going nowhere, right? I, I don't know if, if you're familiar with that uh, show, but, you know, it's like, I think they had a very successful run. And uh, it's a U.S.-based show, so you may not know of it. But, um, but the first three seasons, they, they got nowhere. And all of a sudden, the fourth one, the, starting from the fourth season, if I remember correctly, it just exploded and it became one of the most successful uh, you know, shows uh, sitcoms ever. But the thing is, if you give up on the first three seasons where you've never get discovered, like the fourth season was never made, you you generally lose out on this excellent show and you lose out on the stuff that would that would benefit uh, you know, a, a large chunk of people. So you know, like, like what you were saying is that if you don't like the cycle, like that the chance of being discovered is shorter and shorter, people's attention spends are shorter and shorter. So there's a finite amount of money in order to get your product being noticed. And um, it's hard to stay in the game if you're not successful right away. I think that's what you're driving at too. Um, if, if, but we don't want that. Yeah, well, no. That's if if your success is contingent on the efforts of your publishing
0: company promoting your yeah. book, then you're exposed yeah. in these ways. And and you brought up the other thing too, which is that with self-publishing, you typically make much higher royalty rates, which actually makes some projects sustainable just in themselves that wouldn't be otherwise. You know, for example, you know, it's, I bet Nick Russo would not have found a, a conventional book publisher <laughs> to, to sell his one million word, four hundred dollar. Yeah, uh, the study guy for right, cisco but, but it's um, it's
1: sp yeah
0: but that that book for for you know from the author's perspective to make it worth his worth his time and a sustainable thing uh he didn't need to reach a million people <laughs> <Precisely>. <laughs> i wish he, I, I wish he had uh, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but he didn't need to and and there are lots of i mean i'm sort of saying it in a joking way there are books that exist because um of self-publishing that wouldn't have existed otherwise and they met all all three hundred experts in that area in the world now, <laughs> now now have an extra excellent book. The market is one hundred percent saturated. Three hundred copies were right. sold, but it's an excellent book that the wouldn't have existed otherwise. And the authors now can pay for their their kids' college or something like that. I mean, right. these, these are the great the great successes that come from having these different kinds of models. And I mean, you know, just to, you know, you know, speaking of things that you experience over the years, you know, um, particularly at Lean Pub is. Um, There's still a sort of still we still using the word still one thing that hasn't changed about um, a certain kind of uh, negativity that some people will have when it comes to self publishing books, but Mm -hmm. um, when you've when you've found when you've discovered the fact that you can actually pay for your own time to write that book you always wanted to write and have everyone in the world who cares about that issue learn about it and thank you for the book. Um, yeah. uh, you know, your, your attitude towards it starts to change and you stop worrying so much about like, Oh, what does this say about my social status that I self-published a book? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you start asking more serious when it, it it's kind of funny, but like when it becomes truly possible to do it well, self-publish, yeah. I mean, you stop worrying. So you start thinking about what you can accomplish rather than what people are going to think, if you know what I mean.
1: I agree. I agree a hundred percent. I mean, it's really about freedom. And you know, working with traditional publisher, like you said, they really worry about, uh, you know, the first goal is to sell books, so they want to capture as big of a base as possible. So you're talking about, you know, like SEO ranking. You're talking about uh, most likely beginner books, right? Like there's only so much experts or intermediate that who who are interested in a topic, but the the base is like a, a pyramid. The the base, the you know, introductory cor- the introductory books usually capture the most potential readers. So that, you know, if you realize that part, it's really not sometimes not in sync with the author's objective. From the author's objective perspective, they really want to write the book they want to read. And they want to write the book that uh, has the kind of influence that they're looking for. So when there's Delta, usually in a traditional sense, the publisher wins, right? That you're, you're bending your you know, original goal into including this chapter that might not have otherwise made it into it, or you made every chapter 6,000 words instead of, you know, 3,000, because, you know, whatever. So, um, so I think, I think it's really about freedom that it provides uh, people about, for authors that, you, you know, like you said, you don't, you don't need to worry about all these other stuff. You just focus on what you want to write. And if, you know, both the readers are very happy and you're good with it, then, so be it, and prior to Limpop, I don't think there's anything that, uh, that was available. Um, of course, you know, create space and all that, but that's another story. Well, actually, that's, that's actually
0: a really interesting thing to bring up in the context as well, because all, all, um, particularly in the print book world, actually kind yeah. of the kind of trend is in a very good way has been not exactly the opposite from what I was describing, but basically because of print on demand is, is how books are produced now. Yeah. The sort of like, what they used to call the mid list or backlist books. You know what I mean? Like the books that the yeah. company's not promoting anymore because they're 10 years old. A book could be yeah. 20 years old. It may not have sold a copy in 20 years, but then for whatever reason, the subject that the book is about just starts trending and everybody yeah. just goes onto what, Amazon right. and, and clicks a button. And then some, there's some, like a bunch of automated messages get sent back and forth. And, uh, and, and there's a machine somewhere printing that book off now. Um, yeah, exactly and and you the, the reason that that that's that's revolutionary is because in the past it was only you could only make money by printing a big you know
1: pop, inventory of books a yeah. big
0: inventory of books right and um uh and then and then if someone ordered them you'd be like thank god i can get get one of those out the door uh, right. but now that they're being printed when they're being ordered um right. and you can do that profitably it means any book that has been written and is existing in a digital file somewhere can have its printing triggered by like, right. you on your phone um, yeah and and so that that's actually made that's actually made a lot of books profitable in a way now that they've like or you know at least they're generating some
1: royalties for their authors in a way that they actually wouldn't have in the past um, i agree i agree yeah so i think um so i was actually with uh, the fulfillment center branch within amazon when they acquired uh create space as well as the other um the other company i, I forgot the name but uh for create for books right but the other company for uh, digital media like movies and uh pressing dvds so they were very much on on demand as well so you would you you kind of think of movies or dvds as if you know when they release it they they you know make a bunch of discs and, and maybe that's true for the first run but afterwards braveheart for example right 1995 and if somebody wants to buy a dvd of braveheart it's not like there's this, they dust off from the shelf on some old warehouse and, and ship it to you. It's a digital file that's stored somewhere. And now it's like, oh, well, great, great Braveheart. We'll just make a disk right there and then and ship it to Eric. And so that allows, like you said, like a lot of the long tail um, people who were, you know, might not be served, uh, be able to just make a possibility. So, so you're right. Um, print on demand is really revolutionary and um, it's great. Um, and I was slyly hoping, hoping there to
0: find a way into talking about your book, um, uh, <laughs> Kafka, and sure, running no for ways. network DevOps. Um, uh, and I, I was, I was trying to do it by setting the idea that like messages are being sent back and forth uh, yes. between what you might call producers and consumers, but these are all machines. Um, uh, yeah. And so I was wondering if you could just take a few moments to talk about um, about the book and uh, what Kafka is.
1: Yeah, sure. So Kafka is really just a messaging system. So if you think about the use cases of of kafka we have a lot of databases and um storage options like you know your um your large scale whether it's sql NoSQL database we have a lot of options when you need to write a, a record persistent somewhere and then retrieve it later right you write it you, you know like you're signing up a library card or you do your driver license your failure information is stored in the database somewhere and when you need it you retrieve it but what we're lacking is this system where we're treating data as in something about data in motion, that something that data comes in and it's only stored temporarily in the storage capacity until we could enrich that data. And we influence that data and, you know, kind of transport it. So for example, in a network security sense, for example, that's when I first started to think about treating data as in data is this moving always you know, morphing subject, right? So we would have, you know, say a lock somewhere and then we'll have an IP address and in the lock itself and in IP address is not very meaningful. So what we need to do is we put the IP address into a place where we could create a IP database table or database, you know, database that we know this IP address is from Russia and it's from the company of, you know, I don't know, Russia, telecom for example, and then we feed it into the Kafka topic and the Kafka subscriber received that information and it would say, okay, now, now we're correlating that IP address with other information that we may have. Maybe it's, you know, some, we have a list of botnets, we have a list of vulnerable IPs and we could match that and whether that's the hit or miss. And now that's a second topic for publishers and subscribers, then we could publish it to the third place where we could store it into a place where we could visualize and we could have aggregated into a map and so on and so forth. So if you do that enough, then you have a more aggregated view, but the point is if you need to write that data, you need to write that log entry into a database, retrieve it, enrich it, and then write it to a database again. And then retrieve it. So like that pattern is very different than my use case of always treating the the data as in the stream of flowing data. So that's essentially what the problem CAFRAC is trying to solve is trying to treat data as in data in motion. And you're always trying to get data, retrieve data, and then it become a permanent storage at the very end.
0: Yeah, and just to give people, I hope, I'm going to try and come up with a concrete example of this, yeah, um, uh, sure. based, based on do. some of the research I did from your, your YouTube uh, uh, interviews and stuff that I've seen. But let's see if I can sort of bring all this down to a collapse it down to a very specific example, which is uh, Netflix and when you pause Netflix. Yeah. Um, Netflix uses Kafka, I think, and, and that that pausing is a topic in right. kaf- Kafka parlance, right? Like that, right. That it's not, it's not like sort of storing the whole movie paused in that state somewhere, it's kind of it's kind of writing a, a, a quote unquote topic that like, here, here's basically a sort of like pointer to where in that movie you want to go
1: if the person clicks play again. Right, and if you're like me, you know, I'm always sampling different movies. So there's like within the span of 30 minutes, I might be looking at movie A, pausing it, and then looking at movie B, pausing it, and go, oh no, let me go back to movie A and I'll, I'll you know, re- watch it for five more minutes and then I'll stop. And then I'll go back to my, you know, maybe I'm doing on my TV, and then I'll go back to my um, uh, treadmill. I want to continue on on my iPad, and then I have to do that again. So those are the kind of stuff that, um, you know, Netflix is using Kafka perhaps to store those temporary information. And those, those, you know, like my first pause for movie A, that is only meaningful until I resume it on movie B. Then that information is no longer. Uh, useful for anybody, right? Like, I don't I don't care that on, you know, Sunday night, 7 p.m., I, I pause it at, you know, 5 minutes 42. All I care is my latest progress for movie A is, you know, hour and a half into that movie. And I want that to be, you know, transparent to all of the devices, right? Whether it's on my phone, my iPad, and so on. So that was, those are the kind of problems that Kafka would solve, um, you know, uh, and just just that technology in general. It's not for everything and it's not for, so back to what we're talking about. It's so interesting when, right? Like everything goes back into what we're talking about. I knew this book would not be um, as popular as mastering Python networking, or, you know, I knew this topic wouldn't be useful for everybody, especially in a network engineering community. You know, if most people are still learning about automation, they don't really worry about data. They don't really worry about just like I didn't worry about it in the beginning but I wanted to write this book, right? God, you know, I, I, I don't care if, you know, two people read this book. I want this, to have this book out there so that it could serve a purpose. It could serve people who does need it. It's like, um, I forgot who said this, right? But it's like, do you want to, do you want to write a, a book that's like a vitamin or do you want to write a book that's like a painkiller, right? So when you're in pain, you're like, oh my God, I want that painkiller this is the exact book that I want to, you know, it will solve my problem tomorrow. I'd be a superstar at work versus it's like, oh, it's a nice to have. It's like, oh, I, I wanted to learn about automation at some point And I'll just buy this book. I eat this vitamin and it's good for me. Um, so I, I look at Kafka as being okay, I was the one looking for this book in the network engineering context. And I want this book to be that one book that when somebody else needs it, they, they could be able to download it. And, um, yeah it, it 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 it's only a fraction of the sales figure um for, for the master in python but i'm happy with it right like and and i'm glad i did it yeah thanks very much for that that image i've never heard that before but that that perfectly
0: captures uh, <laughs> uh, so many like you know sort of my brother and I have this joke that you, there's an infinite number of ways you can split the world up into two kinds of things. Um, <laughs> and this is when you've, got, you've given me a new one, which is vitamins and painkillers. Right, um, right, right. Uh, that, that's actually, that captures it very well. And it captures it very well too from the, from the author's perspective as well, right? Because sometimes people write books um, for the same reason, right? Like, you know, I'll, it'll, it'll be good for me uh, or it'll get rid of this terrible pain that I have to be able right. to just put these thoughts down. Uh, and, and have to do ha- like force myself to do it in an orderly clear way uh, because then I'll, I'll be actually be solving my own problem by forcing myself to do that. It's the old it's a version of the old line of like, you don't really understand something until you have to teach it. And so by, setting, by setting yourself that challenge, like then you'll really understand it. Um, For sure. Uh, the last question, yeah. I, always, I always like to ask uh, guests on the podcast if they're LeanPub authors is if there was one terribly awful broken thing about LeanPub, That you could ask us to fix or if there was one
1: magical feature you could ask us to build for you can you think of anything you would ask us to do um i can't think of any like glaring thing i mean the fact that i bought a lifetime membership right like that means (laughs) I, i believe in the system i believe in enough that you know i want to work with with this platform long term but what i would think that it would really help is to now i right now in order for me to um do a more thorough distribution channel. I have to go to some somebody else for for my use case. I have to go to uh, Publish Drive, which is another startup that pushes you know that pushes it to other marketplaces such as you know, uh, what is it like uh, iBook for Apple Store. You know they they also do Amazon and they also work with Ingram. So you know you could sell it to foreign uh companies and so on and especially if you want like a print version of your book as well so if i could ask for a pony i know it's a heavy lift and um it's it's probably against the idea of lean (laughs) so um but but that's 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 what i would say you mean like a make a
0: make a print book and distribute it distribute it yeah make it easier
1: to distribute it and uh, maybe market it buy ads on some other platforms that's another thing that um uh, these other vendor provides, which is, so what I do is, you know, I, I use LeanPub to to write the book and make it in a print ready state. And then I could upload it to somebody else in order for them to make a print copy as well as, um, you know, buy ads if I wanted to. I, I didn't, but, you know, if I wanted to promote my book more, I'm able to buy ads on such as Amazon platform, maybe uh, Google search and so on and so forth
0: that's really fascinating um this is something we've been asked for generally speaking in the past i mean very specifically we have as as um as eric's mentioning we have a print ready pdf output uh export feature so if you've written your book in one of our workflows you can just click a button and we give you the pdf i mean you set some parameters and stuff but then you get you get the pdf file that you need to upload to like amazon kdp or lulu or 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 all these other sort of services that can then be print on demand services like we were just talking about um uh, but but more generally speaking, what people are often asking, on a more basic level, what they're asking for is like, look, I don't want to have to go to five, I, my, my book publishing part of my life is one room in the mansion. And I, <laughs> I, or I wish it could just be one room in the mansion. But so I've got the room in the mansion, which is LeanPub, but now I've got to go to three garages. Um, What have you to, you know, do other get do the other things I need to do. Right. Um, Right. And, uh, and so there is a desire out there for that. And so I've got a very specific question for you on that, actually, if you don't mind. Um, Yeah, go for it. Or if you could click a button on LeanPub. And we then published it on Amazon Mm -hmm. ourselves, which would then have to be under like a LeanPub account or imprint or something like that. Yeah. Would I mean, obviously, we'd have to like, we'd have to get some cut of whatever the royalties that came in. From that, were. Would that be something you'd want to do, even though you could just go and set yourself up on Amazon independently and get 100% of the Amazon returns from the Amazon sales? Would it be, you know, I'm sure you know what I'm asking. Like, would it be, yeah, would it be worth saving your time and the efficiency to just have all of that handled by LeanPub, even though you might have made some more money if you'd done Amazon independently?
1: Yeah, I don't think so. I wouldn't, I know other authors. That I've talked to would be useful for them, and they would totally go for that. But for me, it wasn't. Um, I I wouldn't do it, and I'll tell you why. It was. It's not so much about the money. It's more about um, the freedom and the uh, control that I would get. Right. So, um this this book, since it was the first, you know, kind of end to end finished book for Leanpub, I actually did a lot of experiment. Right. So I would so. know for people who doesn't know lean pub also once you publish the book you can also pause selling of the book if it for any reason uh, that requires so for in this case because i wanted to experiment with kindle unlimited and all of that and they require exclusivity on on those so i could pause the lean pub and i could pause the distribution on published drive so that kindle becomes the exclusive provider and i just wanted to see how they come up with like the royalty percentage and and all of that. So the added benefit of Kafka, you know, knowing that it might not be as popular of a topic is I get a lot of freedom to try out these different things. And I did did try all these other stuff, right? And uh, give Amazon exclusivity, you know, kind of edit the page within Amazon, get different ISBN numbers from different sources, and including from Amazon itself sign So read through all the um, agreements and all of that. So. I think for me, I wouldn't do that because of the control. Um, What I think would, um, and this is just from experience, right? So most of the books I think selling in the U S probably 50% comes from Amazon and what I would want um, in this very specific case is I want to have that A plus page. If you just, you know, if you spend a little bit more time, think about your, if you have a consulting gig, right? If a customer that's, generates 50% of your revenue, you want to be able to treat that customer as a VIP and give it as much, you know, love tender care as possible, as opposed to all the other ones that you maybe just want to hit the mark as being, you know, pretty good, but you want this, this VIP customer to feel excellent and be at home. So in this case, because Amazon generates about 50% of, of the, all the book sales or more that I want to be able to take that print ready copy upload to Amazon. And generate the um, what they call the A plus page, which means you know there's more summaries, and you could upload images, and and uh, give more details on the on the what the book was about. So that's very purely personal taste, I would say. But I would also think that um, just from chatting with other. Um, other authors in the networking industry who also uh, does publishing on lean pub is that you know they would totally go for that they just wanted a few print copies that they could show their parents or you know that they could give out at conferences on speaking engagements and so i could see both ways It's just that for me personally because i take it more seriously i wouldn't i wouldn't go down that route
0: yeah. Thanks very much for going into so much detail. I really appreciate that. It's, it's one of the reasons we leave these kinds of questions till the end. And, and by the way, there, there actually are people who skip to the end. They're like, I don't care about all that other stuff. I oh, is that about. right? Oh, yeah. Okay. No, they're, they're like, is that like what you just described there, like for someone who's like starting out in, in, in self-publishing or something like that, like that's just a golden three minutes of, uh, of insider knowledge that would take so much time to learn about on your own um, and yeah. to hear about that experience directly and, and the various needs and the, 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 choices, like when you're self-publishing, you just, you're making choices all the time, you know, right. Right? unless you're not right. You know, cause that's not, cause you don't want to be making choices all the time. Uh, right. But, but, and and it, it really does come down to you and your personality and maybe the individual project and stuff like that. Um, for a lot of people, you know, if they're going to be selling on Amazon, they're going to want control over the, how their books are portrayed and how they're portrayed, you know, in a fine detail, they might be, Tweaking, there might be some people who want to tweak it every day to see does this make a difference, does that make a difference? Yeah, and you know,
1: A/B yeah. testing that yeah. that would be a killer feature. Um, and I, I, so you mentioned people might might find it useful, right? So feel free to reach out to me on on Twitter. I've learned so much just from this this one book of self publishing um, experience, right? Like who would have known that there's only one company who sells ISBN numbers in the whole of United States, <laughs> <laughs> right? Or yeah. you know how how Uh, for example, like how thick of a page it's usually in the print format. So that how many pages does it take in order for you to have like words on the spine, right? So, and less than that page because of the depth that it doesn't even make sense to have words on the spine and so on. So if anybody's interested, I've learned so much and I'm happy to share that knowledge, just reach out to me on LinkedIn on Twitter whatever. I'm happy to just bounce off ideas because because we're, we're all connected and we should be helping each other out.
0: Yeah, and if you do uh, if you do ever write a blog post about it or something, um, uh, please don't hesitate to get in touch with me and I'll make sure to kind of, you know, the pub accounts will tweet about it and stuff like that because- uh, Oh, awesome. That, that kind of thing, I mean, you know, not, not only would it be obviously inherently valuable in itself, but like it really helps people who are starting out or who are frustrated or who just don't know what, you know, which they've see these two paths before them and don't know which one to take. Um, yeah. Hearing about those kinds of personal experiences can really help. Um, and i
1: i um yeah i mean not to derail but i did benefit from a lot of these tribal knowledge as well before so i was approached by pact but i didn't know anything about it right like is this percentage they give good or bad or like how many copies do i anticipate to right uh, to to get but there's surprisingly not as many people to write about the publishing experience as i would have imagined but i did go out there there'll be like i don't know like Second or third page of Google search results, <laughs> like that's how deep I go and and look for those blog posts. And one for those few that actually publish the numbers, it helped me tremendously to set the expectations right about you're not going to get rich, but if you know what's considered good, right, is ninety thousand good on Amazon ranking? That is right, is a million good or whatever. So I mean, it's it's really been it really benefited me, and I want to contribute back and be you know, be, be part of the solution and providing people who are confused. Maybe. Yeah. Well, please. Yeah. Everybody please team. Eric means it when he's friendly guy (laughs) online.
0: Uh, So, I mean, that we've never met, but you know, I, you know, doing this research, I got a sense of your personality and how open you are and how much you, you like helping people and stuff like that. Um, Just, just, just to close that off on that note, when it comes to like, you have to go three pages down when it comes to publishing contracts, one of the really, and and that whole world, there's this woman named Christine Catherine Rush, R-U-S-C-H. She's been okay. a guest on the podcast in the past and her blog is just excellent about that. You'll, you'll, you'll find her pretty quickly. Oh, um, nice. Uh, so if you, if you ever get approached by a publishing company and you're wanting the, the sort of specific, specific amounts is is like, that's changing all the time, but the yeah. sort of principles of like, how should I approach reading a publishing company contract, stuff like that? Her blog is really excellent about that. Um,
1: awesome. I'll check it
0: out. Yeah. Well, um, Eric, thank you very much for uh, taking the time out of, out of the, uh, beautiful kind of Seattle area evening to, uh, to talk to all of us here. And, uh, thanks very much for using LeanPub as the platform for your latest book.
1: Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure, uh, Len. I mean, I thank you for, for creating the platform and I'm, I'm a believer and, um, you know, hopefully I, I get to work with LeanPub a lot more and, uh, I'm sure I will, and I'll enjoy the whole experience and thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks very much.